this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff, a podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And this is our third anniversary episode. Yes. It's hard to believe that we started. It was Thanksgiving weekend 2016 that we started. Yes, it was. It's been a long... I didn't expect it to do... Because... When we first, I was talking to you about doing it before we went to Crime Bake, and then after we went to Crime Bake and you saw podcasters talking, you you thought maybe it would be a good idea, right. and then um, and it was also a good idea because I was unemployed at the time, so I was no longer concerned that you know saying bad words and giving opinions and stuff publicly would have an impact on my <laughs> and um job. but i was gonna get you like a podcaster kit for christmas because i saw that oh. on amazon but then you like jumped right into it wanted to do it wow didn't i didn't take much know convincing. i didn't know you were gonna no, give me it's a- like a microphone i don't know what uh, it was wow now, since um, you already were like yeah i got i'm gonna and get speaking of us being doing this for us being doing this <laughs> for three years. Some of you guys have been listening to us for a long time. So you must know what we're like and catch what we're putting down, including the occasional opening of a Diet Coke. Bottle. I'm sorry. But it, after it was kind of, I, I almost consider it kind of. Okay, okay, okay. I almost consider it kind of weird, a little weird that after our last episode, we got some public and private criticism because we had said some positive things about Nancy Grace and Dr. Phil, and a couple, there were different shades to the criticism. And I just want to reiterate that there was context to what we said. I don't think we said we like everything about them or we like everything they do, particularly Nancy Grace. And the reason I was talking about her positively was because her episode on the Rod Coblin case actually had a lot of elements that Dateline didn't. And I do find her, even her hyperbole and stuff, funny sometimes because life is like that. There are people who uh, you totally disagree with certain things about them and you can still find things funny and stuff. And I think anyone who's been listening to us for, this will be 71 episodes, not including bonus episodes and other things, knows what we think. I mean, I don't think either of us, hide how we feel about things i think we hold back a little on some of our more liberal political views and stuff you know and people are free to listen to us or not that's the great thing about america the one reason i even wanted to bring it up is because i'm noticing a trend just in general that there seems to be less room for nuance and and flexibility One thing that happened recently is the Harvard Crimson, the newspaper at Harvard, covered a rally, an anti-ICE rally. And after covering the rally, they called ICE for comment. And there was this huge uprising on campus. And and I'm kind of simplifying what happened, but there was this huge uprising with people calling for the newspaper to be sanctioned, et cetera, because they talked to ICE, and which bothers me, particularly at Harvard, where I thought people were supposed to be smarter than the rest of the world, that journalists, when they cover a story, talk to both sides, generally, and that just because you get comments from ICE for a story doesn't mean you support the current administration's immigration policy or something. And I think people are less understanding that there are nuances to things. Like, I can find Nancy Grace funny, particularly her hyperbole, while also thinking a lot of what she does is awful and her hyperbole is awful. We have very strong opinions about things, but there's also a lot of shades. And, you know, we can't go out there and change 
how the world thinks, but I would just like people to consider that everything is at this absolute black and white, that there are, you know, you can have different feelings or mixed feelings. Well, yeah, I have contradictory feelings, and I think I said that, yeah, I like Nancy Grace sometimes. What I meant was, not that I support her, but sometimes she makes me laugh. Yeah. And I do not watch her show. No. Um, I don't agree with the thing. I find her her pro-prosecution stance appalling a lot of the time. I do as well. So, but... And I think what I said, too, what I liked about Dr. Phil's podcast is he's... The, one of the one of the only podcasters or even people on true crime shows and stuff I've ever heard that says yes you should get a lawyer instead yes. of instead of acting like getting a lawyer is a sign that there's something wrong with you and you're not helping the police and I find that a very important point. Well, I find him what the thing I like about his true crime podcast is besides the fact that he does talk about the psychological he delves into that part right. of the motivation. He also because he worked in the court system for a long time, he talks about that and he also I find him even though he does have opinions on the case still to cover all, he gives every you all side. the information, and he does cover right. every side. And I know some people don't like him simply because they don't like the way he talks or his voice. <laughs> um, and I can understand or his that. Use of cliches and little people things. who have issues with voices probably Wouldn't, don't listen to, us. Be listening to us. And the um, other thing is, but, yeah, I, I like his. I, I, think, and I think we even mentioned that we funny. felt he was exploitive. Like when I stopped watching, That's why him, I don't watch his show. Like yeah. the, the whole Doctor Phil family thing and stuff. I mean, I don't think he's perfect. I don't think his show is perfect. But I, again, was talking about an aspect of a podcast of his that I enjoy, that I thought was valuable. And so I just feel like if you don't get the contradictions in what I like and don't like, then whatever. And if that's going to keep you from listening, I can't can't do anything about it because I am who I am. I'm 54 years old and... That's that's me. Yeah, and and, and also, it or not, also or anyone like who feels not. like we've been hiding certain like right wing views <laughs> or weird. I mean, it, you, you can't listen to us. us. And what I think one thing you can say about us is we are genuine and we're out and there. We and we did say to each other when we started this show that we are going to. Do and say exactly what we want. Mm-hmm. Anything goes. Yeah. I know we had criticism before. Uh, somebody that listened didn't like us bickering. <laughs> or and, interrupting. But in all honesty, it's not that's, that we, we we're won't not bickering. bickering against each other. No, that's how our it's, family communicates. And um, we know that anything that happens, and we're going right. to we're gonna record uh, it, and we are right. going and to I think, play it. We right. don't cut those right. out. And I think, right, there's a lot of stuff we could cut out that we don't, no. just because... Frankly, it makes me laugh. Yeah, no, I think it's funny to it. too. And um, and also, if you were in a room, I get mad if you were in a room with our entire family, I mean, I know it scared some people away. It, some people, people enjoy it, and some people yeah. don't. And it, you know, but again, anyway. it's a free country. You can listen to who you want. I would say, if anything, that if we're holding back on anything, it's that we don't. <laughs> it, we try not to fully beat the drum on our political no, opinions no. because we know what a what a slippery slope yeah. that is and this show isn't about no. politics. So but that said we have a lot You of, have some updates. So, so we have a, this uh, show this is gonna have a bunch of short ish segments. We so we have basically some updates and an three Holio. Holio? 
you know, like in the minstrel shows, they had oleo, which is a bunch of, like a variety Right, of right. I was trying to remember what that stood for. I don't, like I don't know if it whistle. stands for anything. It, it did, it it's did. It's like a variety show. For some, but in any case, we, so we basically have some updates and then three main minis that you'll find fascinating. Oh, they're, yes. Okay, so you're going to go first. So I go first. I am updating episode 33, The Texted to Death, and it's not really an update. There are two things. First of all, in Massachusetts, they're trying to get a bill passed that does hold somebody accountable if they text someone, quote-unquote, into committing suicide. We won't go into a big thing about no, who's responsible for a suicide. But and interestingly enough, in October, there was a case, another case in Boston, where a young woman at Boston College, hounded her boyfriend by text, and he committed suicide. He jumped off the roof of a building, I think, in front of his parents. Oh. But it was a lot different case. The Michelle Carter case, there were issues concerning her mental health and what was going on with her and her changes in behavior. This, it looks more like the young woman had a very controlling, in the Michelle Carter Conrad Roy case, they didn't even have no, they uh, had, the physical, no, they saw each no. other like three times. In this case, they were boyfriend and girlfriend, and it looks like possibly the young woman was very controlling, and there were a lot of other kind of abusive aspects to the relationship. I won't do it. Maybe I'll do an episode about it sometime. And Although, I'm, we're going by the reporting, and remember, we went by the... Right. Anyways, just go on. So I just want to bring up that there was another case. People are comparing it, but it is a different case and we'll update that in the future as it goes along. And, and what were you didn't say their names? I didn't because. Oh, you're waiting. Okay. Well, the reason I didn't say their names is because it hasn't been. Uh, it's not in court okay. yet or anything, and I didn't fair want it. enough. I just wanted to bring it up and not get into a long thing. And you know when people say fair enough, you know what I always think that they're saying. Yeah, that I'm they're just saying I'll allow you to say your right, stupid right, opinion that, that, I, that I don't really agree with you, but I'm just letting you Sometimes say. Sometimes I think people are conceding that yes, you're making a good point. I know. I just just like never I a phrase I use. I, I used to work for somebody who said it all the time, and it drove me nuts. But I will say about that case what I what I was just saying that we did end up having a different opinion about Michelle Carter after we after we learned more about it. We did. So. We saw that documentary. So you have another one. Yes. The episode, what episode was the Gardner? 42. So episode 42, the Gardner Museum heist. heist. And this is not a big, exciting, who they, they solved it. Day. But a man named David Turner, who was believed to have possibly been involved and who went to prison on other charges and was freed from jail last week. In 1999, he and some accomplices tried to rob an armored car depot and they were arrested in an FBI sting. But he was, the FBI um, thought he knew something about the Gardner heist, the Gardner Museum heist, and if you don't know what that is, just Google listen it. Listen to episode 42. Or listen to episode 42. Yeah, that's right. Don't tell them to Google it. <laughs> I know. And, um, in fact, they manipulated his conviction on this other charge to try to get him to talk, but he never did, and it's unclear what he knows or did know about the Gardner God. Museum heist, but he's out, so they've probably got a GPS on his car. I'm and sure they're following Because he's going to go get those paintings out of whatever, you know, shed their buried in and, you know, put them on eBay or something. My update, episode 
54. I did a main mini on Frankie the dog, oh, if you remember. Oh, so sad. So Frankie was, two men in Winter Harbor, Maine, were accused of torturing and using him for target practice. Now, oh. I didn't know, this came out in yeah, court. Yeah, I don't think we knew that. Um, we knew that Frankie the dog had been kidnapped and, and shot. He was the dog of a, a lobsterman, and these two men worked for him. I think just one of the guys was a fucking asshole, yeah. and the other one went along with him. Yeah. A drunken jerk. The old, the old psychopath with a compliant friend scenario. So that was episode, if you want to hear more about what, what exactly happened, that was episode 54, Albert Flick episode. It's at the beginning of that. Yeah. So Na- uh, Nathan Burke and Justin Shipman were indicted on charges of burglary, theft, aggravated criminal mischief, and aggravated cruelty to animals last fall. So Justin Shipman has just been found guilty. He hasn't been sentenced yet. He turned himself into the police on September 4th of 2018. And he was being held without bail. And part of that is because he had prior, um, yeah, he's a dirtbag. When I first wrote my story, all they knew that the dog had been shot. But apparently uh, the dog was tortured Mm. um, and used as target practice. So that makes the guy even more of a fucking piece of shit. And I don't know when, um, I don't know when Nathan Burke is is going up for trial, but we'll keep an eye probably, on that. He'll probably I have to put that in Google Alerts. Oh, yeah. And I also have an update on, a kind of an update, on episode 64, which is the Robert, uh, Bonnie Bakley oh, yeah. killing, uh, shooting, the mystery. That was one of my favorites. The mystery yeah. of, of her death. People Magazine, about a month ago in October, had a, an article about their daughter. Her name Rose. is Rose Lenore. And this is a short thing, so I'm just going to yeah, read And how it. old is she now? She is 19, and wow. we'll find out when I read oh, yeah. it. Okay. okay, this is just a little short article written by Christine Pulisic, so I'm just going to read it because it's easier than me. Yeah, I just didn't want to try to summarize it because it's yeah. pretty short. So after a lifetime of silence, Robert Blake's daughter is speaking out. Rose Lenore was just 11 months old when her mother, Bonnie Lee Bakley, was fatally shot outside Vitello's restaurant in Studio City, California, on May 4, 2001. She was just a year older when her Emmy-winning actor father, Robert Blake, was charged with Bakley's murder. He was later acquitted but found civilly liable. It was kind of a traumatic childhood at that point, Lenore says. I would think. Raised by her half-sister, Delina, and her husband in Sherman Oaks, Lenore lived a private life away from the spotlight and from Blake, who she'd last seen when she was five. And I have no idea. She doesn't say why she hasn't seen mm-hmm. him. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Now, as she embarks on, act, on an acting career, Lenore says she wants to finally take control of the narrative surrounding her life. It's hard when everyone talks about you and you're not talking about yourself, she tells people mm. in this week's issue. I am now. Oh, she was Aww, a cute, she's a cute little girl. Lenore, who says she has suffered from anxiety and depression over the years, was the subject of unwanted media fascination after her mother's murder. She recalls an incident in her teens when, as a cheerleader at a high school football game, she noticed that some guy in the stand was taking pictures of me, she says. I had a feeling it was paparazzi, but I just kept going. The show must go on. And I have seen those pictures because when I was mm. doing the research, A few weeks later, those photos appeared on the pages of a tabloid magazine. It was a positive article, she says, but it put distance between me and my classmates. When Lenore turned 18, she decided to reconnect with her past, which included visiting Backley's grave near the Hollywood Hills. I kind of didn't know where she was buried for the longest time, she says. I could have just looked it up, but I didn't. I don't think I was ready. And then when I was 18, I was like, I'm ready. I want to go visit her. 
Earlier this summer, she met Blake, whom she referred to as Robert rather than Dad. We talked about my childhood, she says. We talked about his life, what he's been doing. I just talked about everything. Lenore, who is now 19 and lives with her boyfriend and two cats, Mm. says she's happy with her life and her plan to pursue her lifelong dream of acting. You get to let go of everything else, all the nervousness, anxiety, and sadness, and you get to be somebody else, she says. She also wants to set the record straight about her life. People talk about it anyway, she says. It would be nice to have the actual person and they're talking about being able to say something. Good for her. Yes, so that was episode 64. Uh, She looks like a nice girl. I hate to say this, but she's probably better off Mm. with with the life she has led um, than what may have happened. Well, given the people in your two episodes concerning that (laughs) stuff, it's like a lot of those kids of actors did not turn out well. No. And she would have had... um, a sociopathic mother, and I don't know what the deal is with Robert. Well, Bob, but he's still just a little messed up. He seemed to love her a lot when she yeah. was a baby, but it's weird that they haven't... Well, I seem to remember reading an article in People years ago, and it may have been prior to everything being on the internet and stuff, about, you know, the tragedy of him not seeing his kids. And it would have explained why not. But um, maybe he... But, you know, a lot of times people, like, he is... Obviously, if you listen to my episode, and if you ever see him being interviewed, he is a severely depressed person. Yeah. He's had a very hard life. Yeah. And maybe he, sometimes people feel like, you know what, this person is better off, off without me in their life. life. Yeah. Right. And maybe that's what he felt. Maybe. Yeah, so you have a main mini. Uh, well, Unless you mean, want me to do No, I'll, why don't I do mine and then you can do yours since okay. it was your turn. So yes, okay. we need to play the main mini theme. As always, that came from Maine.gov. Yes. Which, and I know people who don't live in Maine probably like that fucking song again, but people who do live in Maine are singing along. Right. And I don't play the whole thing. If you grew up in Maine, you'd probably sing along. I don't play the whole thing because it's just repeating the same thing over. So, anyway. Which kids like, but. Yeah. Should I just get going? Get going. On October 23rd, Maine released its 2018 crime statistics. And for the ninth straight year, crime in the state has declined. There was only one crime that increased from the previous year, homicide. Ooh, what was it? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Homicide. Oh. <laughs> yeah. In 2018, there were 23 homicides in Maine. And Maine has a population of 1.3 million people. Mm-hmm. And that was up from 21 in 2017. Nine of the homicides in the state in 2018 were domestic violence. Oh, gee, what a surprise. Yeah. That's about par for the course. Usually around half of the state's murders are domestic violence related. The huge majority of the victims, women, with children coming in second. There's rarely a male domestic violence murder victim in Maine. I'm just saying that anecdotally. I can't remember who the last one was, except for the guys who killed themselves Mm. after they killed the other people. It's one of the safest places in the country to live unless you fall in love with the wrong guy. That's true. Yep. The same day the crime statistics were released, as if to underline the homicide rise, police in Waterville found the murdered body of Melissa Sousa. 
Melissa, 29, had twin eight-year-old daughters and was last seen alive the day before putting them on their school bus. When she didn't answer calls from friends and hadn't been active on social media all day long that Tuesday, her friends asked police to check out her apartment. Her friends had a reason to be afraid. Sometimes when a woman is killed by her partner, and we'll talk about that a little later, you hear, no one saw this coming, Mm -hmm. which I think is bullshit, but we'll talk about that later. In the case of Melissa Sousa and her boyfriend of 15 years, Nicholas Lovejoy, 28, the father of the twins, everyone saw it coming. It wasn't just that Lovejoy had a shitload of guns, both in their apartment and on property he rented, or that he acted erratically, particularly after a car accident seven years ago that left him in a coma for a month, or that he had what family and friends called anger issues. There was also this. He sometimes locked Melissa out of the house. Several times in the weeks before she disappeared, according to friends, he pointed a loaded gun at her and threatened to kill her, Mm. at least once in front of the kids who begged him not to kill her. No one reported any of this to the police, or if they did, there's no record of it. The Morning Sentinel reported that many of Sousa's friends said they knew Lovejoy was abusive, but Sousa turned down offers for help because she was afraid of what would happen if she took action. Billy Morse, who worked with Sousa at the Waterville Dunkin' Donuts, said that he and his wife Shauna were friends with her. Once, when she was visiting them a couple years ago, quote, she was black and blue and you could see knuckle marks and you knew it was Nick, Morse said. She said it was the dog, but I said, I know what's happening. I was going to beat him up, and she told me, don't do it. It was my fault. Another friend told the Sentinel that Melissa wanted to stay together with him for the sake of the kids. You know, I think the answer to that is obvious. Mm. But recently, Melissa had had enough. She was moving out. The Saturday before she was killed, she asked a friend to come over because she told Lovejoy she was moving out, and he was, quote, freaking out. The friend, Tasha Algren, who'd become friends with Melissa when they worked together at Dunkin' Donuts years before. I don't think Algren worked there anymore, but mm-hmm. they both worked yeah. there together. Told the Morning Sentinel that Sousa had been unhappy in the relationship for a while and even had had a brief affair, though that was over at this point. Melissa and Lovejoy had agreed to separate and share custody of the girls, but Lovejoy couldn't handle it. Mm. He'd said things to Algren like he was going to go to jail and Melissa was going to be dead. Still, Algren said, I do not think he would do anything like this. I'm so close to Nick and Mel. We're like my brother and sister. I love them both. That Saturday, when Melissa asked Algren to come over because Lovejoy was, quote, acting very weird, Algren found him stalking around the living room with a loaded gun. Algren talked him into unloading the gun, which he did, and then he went to bed, and she and Melissa stayed up and talked before Sousa left around 2 a.m. to go to work at Duncan's. Algren talked to Melissa that Monday for the last time. When Algren got home from work around 2 p.m. Tuesday, Lovejoy was at her house in Winslow, which is across the river from Waterville. He brought a camper over at some point, and depending on what account you read, had um, parked it in her yard and was, like, renting property from her to park his camper in. In the Morning Sentinel stories, Algren talks about him having a camper at her house in the police affidavit, they refer to rental property of his at the same address. So yeah. Apparently, he stored a lot of guns there. Oh. He had some in his apartment and some at the camper. Well, you can never have too many. He'd also been there earlier that day, according to Algren's babysitter, who saw him with a shovel. Mm. Algren had to go back to work that afternoon. She told the Sentinel that Lovejoy hugged her, which was out of character for him. He also said, I loved 
her. Uh, she says, and that's what kind of stuck with me around 4.30 or 5 o'clock, she mm. told the Sentinel. A lot of the information for this case I got from the Morning Sentinel since they were the one place that extensively covered it. At 6.44 p.m. that night, according to the police affidavit, a friend yeah. called police asking they check on Melissa because she wasn't answering calls and hadn't been active on social media all day. The friend told police that Lovejoy, the boyfriend, is, quote, abusive and threatens Melissa with guns all the time. The friend also gave police an audio recording of an argument between Susan and Lovejoy, in which Lovejoy can be heard racking a gun and saying he has two options, kill you before I do that or kill you before I do that, according to the affidavit. And I'm not sure what what I, before I do that means, yeah, no. but it, I think that meaning overall is clear. Yeah. At 8 p.m., two more of Melissa's friends went to the police station to report her missing and to report that they had concerns about it. When police talked to Lovejoy at the apartment after that, he said he didn't know where Melissa was, that she'd taken off on foot around 9 a.m. and they'd been arguing the last few months and she wanted to leave him because she had a boyfriend. Police in the affidavit said Lovejoy refused to show them his phone or video footage from surveillance cameras that he claimed showed her leaving that morning. And told police he had been, quote, out looking for Melissa all day. He also asked police if it would be a good idea for him to go look for Melissa and leave the kids at home. And the police told him not to do that, but to stay at home with the kids. Duh. After that, they watched Lovejoy from the street. He mopped the floor and kept looking up and down the street for a few minutes at a time, staring up and down the street. He eventually left the house and they arrested him for, for having a loaded firearm in his vehicle it's not clear what they stopped him for, but they arrested him for having a loaded firearm in his vehicle and also charged him with endangering the welfare of a child for leaving the kids home alone, which they had told him not to do. Right. Where I wonder where they were watching him. From. Well, from their cruiser, but this is a... Waterville doesn't really have any urban sections, yeah. but it's a section with triple-deckers yeah. and close to get, There's a lot of cars parked on the street, so... He so and plus, he's not the brightest bulb. No. When an officer went into the apartment to get the kids, he saw a pair of tan work boots with red-brown stains, mm. a towel with red-brown stains, mm. a roll of duct tape with red-brown stains, Aww. and cardboard with red-brown stains. In the bathroom, he saw red-brown droplets. Jeez. He also found an ammonia bottle on yeah. the sitting on the back of the toilet and said the apartment smelled like ammonia. The kids told police, voluntarily it says, told police, that dad was mad at mom because mom had a new boyfriend. And that when dad tucked them into bed, he told them that the police were going to come and take him out of the house. Well, he was right about that. Yeah. A Maine State Police detective also reported seeing red-brown stains on Lovejoy's socks and pants after he was arrested that night. I guess I should have put that with the rest of the (laughs) red-brown stain listing. On Wednesday... The day after this all happened, police got a warrant to search the apartment, which is at 32 Gold Street in Waterville, the south end, and found Melissa's body in the basement around 4 p.m., and they charged Lovejoy with murder. I think they may have charged him with murder on Thursday after the medical examiner determined it was um, murder. Mm. He's being held at Kennebec County Jail in Augusta without mail, pending a December 6th hearing. In the affidavit, police said Melissa had been shot twice in the stomach and wrapped in a tarp. Aww. During their investigation, many people told them Lovejoy had threatened Sousa with guns during arguments. The affidavit, which was written by Maine State Police Detective Ryan Brockway, by the way, said, 
Once they found the body, Lovejoy allegedly confessed to killing Melissa with a 38 caliber handgun. He told police that after the kids left for school that morning, Melissa pushed him down the stairs. Oh, yeah, and then she did. tried to shoot him, but the weapon didn't fire. He said he picked up the gun, so it, she must have dropped it or mm. something, after, and shot her twice in the stomach, rolled her body in a tarp, wrapped it in duct tape, and dumped it in the basement. That poor guy. Yeah, he's a victim. As you know from so many, many, many of these <laughs> cases... The guy's story about what happened usually isn't true. Uh, it's yeah. just trying to give some rational haha, explanation for why the woman ended up dead. I know he hasn't been convicted, but um, I'd say in this case there's a huge amount of evidence that he wanted her dead. And, um, you know, Ugh, I'm just saying. Poor woman and those poor little girls. I know. God damn. I know. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Marchese told the Morning Sentinel that her office isn't aware of any police reports made regarding the couple before the murder. So all this threatening her with a gun, waving guns around. And no I never went to the police. You know, the newspaper reported that it conducted statewide criminal background checks on Lovejoy in both Maine and Massachusetts, where they lived before moving to Maine, and nothing came up. And I'm not victim-blaming, and we'll no. go into more of this later, to say, and and you friends of people in situations like that, when the guy is threatening over and over to people that he's going to kill somebody, when he has quote-unquote anger issues, when he has tons of loaded guns oh, and is waving them God. around, that's the time, that's long past the time when you say, okay, I'm... I'm going to support my friend by listening to her, but she wants to keep her family together. And that's time you say, listen, Melissa, if you're not going to the police to report this, I am because this guy is going to fucking kill you. And you just go. If you, or if kill your kids. If it costs you the friendship, then that's, right. that's too bad if right. it costs you a friendship. But she would be alive today. Right. Now, I shouldn't, shouldn't say she would be alive today, but, but the chances are she would have. He would have been on police's yeah, radar. Yeah. And in any case, and maybe it would have helped her get away from him safely in some ways. Many people who knew Sousa told the Morning Sentinel that her daughters were her passion and Dunkin' Donuts was her home. And when I saw the pictures of her, not that I'm part of this in any way, but um, that's the one Dunkin' Donuts I go to in Waterville, oh. especially if I'm going up north to Bangor or Millinocket yeah. or somewhere. She looked familiar, I'm just saying. So wow. it's all about me. You yeah. could have saved her. Yeah, I could have. But she would walk through the snow and sleet to get to work sometimes, where one co-worker said, and from where she lived, I think it was maybe a mile and a half from the the Dunkin' Donuts, where one co-worker said she left everything at the door from her personal life and was a lively, bright presence who loved to make others laugh. Another co-worker said she'd do things like hide. She was tiny. She was like five feet tall, very mm-hmm. small woman, would hide in delivery boxes and jump out and <laughs> say boo at people and stuff. She also loved listening to music and could rap even the wordiest, most breathless Eminem songs. That Those are the Sentinels' words, by the way, mm-hmm. which made everyone laugh. Algren, her friend, said that Susa was doing the best she could because she didn't want to have a broken family. Susa wanted Lovejoy to be her and to be in her and their children's lives, but Algren said she was not happy and could not live with him anymore. And Algren said she was a loving, caring person. She just didn't want to rip her kids away from him. Two weeks after Susa was killed, Lauren McCollett, 30, was stabbed to death by her boyfriend, Eric Ryan, also 30, in their Augusta apartment. Mm-hmm. And Augusta, as we mm-hmm. know from listening to this, is about 13 miles south yeah, of Waterville. Yeah, depends on how you go. Yeah. On 95, yeah. yeah, it depends. Our hometown. Augusta police had gotten a call that there was a dead person in an apartment on Northern Avenue in Augusta's Sand Hill neighborhood. And as the landlord was letting them in, Ryan shot himself. Ugh. 
Apparently, Lauren had been dead, quote, for some time, police said. Mm. They didn't elaborate, but later reports made it sound like it was a few hours, because at first I'm like, oh, my God, is, is, I know, you know, is it like psycho? Yeah. yeah, I know. She had a baby on May 23rd, family members said. One of her brothers, Michael, said he tried to contact her on her birthday, October 25th, but didn't hear back. Another brother said he did talk to her on her birthday. Michael said the two had been dating a couple years, and he described the relationship with Ryan as volatile. And he told the Kennebec Journal she would talk about it and post certain incidents on Facebook. Mm. We weren't certain what to believe because there are two sides to every story. Isn't he her brother? And and can I just interject here, too, that when someone is being abused, there's really just one side to the story. Because it doesn't matter what's going on. If somebody is being abused, that's the side to the story. That's right. You know, another brother, John, told WMTW-TV that the family had no indication that Lauren was in danger, and they were shocked by the Mm murder-suicide. He said he saw them in October, and they were laughing and joking around. Everything was fine, he said. And a week later, it was her birthday, and I said, happy birthday to her. And she didn't say anything like she was scared or anything. And then this all happened. There's a pattern through this, not to be all man-bashy, that the women in the reports of all the murders I'm talking about seem much more in tune to the nuances of domestic violence than the men do. Lauren had a congenital illness, Poland syndrome, and her right arm was shorter than her left and had only two fingers. Quote, she was probably one of the most resilient, strongest people I knew with everything she had gone through, whether it was her medical history and upbringing, her brother Michael said. It was very hard on her growing up and in school, he said, but that didn't slow her down. She played sports, including basketball, which was her favorite. She liked writing lyrics and poems and mini novels and stuff like that, Michael said. He told this to the Kennebec Journal. She was really gifted with all that. If she wrote about something that reminded her of someone, she would send it to that person. Both Melissa Sousa and Lauren McCulloch's deaths were sad, but the sadder thing is they're not really out of the ordinary in Maine or anywhere else. Because we have so few murders in Maine, they stand out, but they don't even stand out here that much. They're written about, and not to be a cliche, but then they're a little forgotten about. I don't have a number on how many murders there have been in Maine in 2019 this year, but aside from other non-domestic murders, we've also had, and this is just what I've found online, I don't know if this is a roundup of all. Um, In July, Christopher Dennis, 45, shot his wife Crystal, also 45, with a shotgun and then shot himself in their North Waterboro home. In May, in the town of Lebanon, Allison Parker, 30, Mm -hmm. was shot to death by her former boyfriend, Thomas Doyen, 27, who then shot himself. That one included a standoff in which area homes were evacuated because they weren't sure if Doyen was still alive or not. And, Becky, you reported on that one in episode 67. That's the one where Allison had moved out a few weeks before, but went to the home on that Saturday with a friend and with her parents to get some belongings. And her parents and the friend were downstairs, and she was upstairs getting her belongings when they heard gunshots upstairs, and they fled and called the police. In March, as you also reported in episode 67, Autumn Bryant, 44, was killed by her estranged husband, Kenneth Bryant, 48. She was killed in her brother's home in Gardner, which is just south of Augusta, where she'd been living since they separated um, the previous November. Kenneth, her husband, also burned down his mother-in-law's home in Sydney before he killed himself. And Sydney is in between Augusta and where I live, so it's all connected. State police say they found a binder full of notes in Kenneth Bryant's truck 
that they said connected the fire in Sydney to the murder, but they didn't say much more about what was in it. WGME TV reported that even with the notes, police still don't know why he did it. He did it because he's a fucking... Quote, the separation of the two had been amicable up until last week. We don't know what set him off, but something did. And this tragedy is the result, said Steve McCausland, the police spokesman. And I guess I shouldn't have to be telling the police this, given how often it happens in Maine. But these guys don't need anything to, quote, set them off. Right? And Melissa Seuss's case, where things were a lot, quote, more obvious. Yeah. The deputy AG Marchese told the Sentinel, it's a serious case of domestic violence, duh, and she encouraged victims in abusive relationships to reach out for help. In some matter, in some ways, it's a little bit discouraging, Marchese said, but we remain hopeful for victims when they find themselves in a bad relationship that they reach out and they get some help from any of the domestic violence resource centers. And I don't want to sound again like I'm victim blaming or even friend blaming or family blaming. But it confounds me that no one reported Lovejoy's behavior to I police. Know, I, can't, I, know. I think we've seen over and over again that people are too optimistic, if you want to call it that. Like Melissa's friend, who, despite the obvious issues staring them right in the face, they just can't believe the guy would do it. And I meant to put in Lovejoy's brother, too, saw the problems and said he had anger issues, especially after that yeah, car yeah, accident. He was messed up and, you know, we knew he was violent toward Melissa, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay. Well, I mean, but they didn't think, but they were still shocked. Yes. But they were still shocked he didn't. If you were walking down the street and someone pointed a gun at you, you would call the police. Right. You know? Right. Algren, Melissa's friend, said she didn't want to have a broken family and wanted Lovejoy to be in their life. But I don't think people understand how awful the situation is and how much more awful it can get. And this kind of cliche of not having a broken family. And wanting the person, do you really want somebody who constantly threatens you with a gun in your eight-year-old child's life? What's that going to do to those poor girls? Terry Martin, Seuss's mother, who lives in Haverhill, Mass., and who's trying to get custody of the girls, Martin said what happened to Melissa, she hopes will help others facing domestic violence realize that they can't be afraid and have got to speak up and seek help. You can't be trapped in that, Martin said. You must take immediate action. She told that to the Morning Sentinel. Ashley Walker, a friend of Sosa's and co-worker from Dunkin' Donuts, told the Sentinel, we need to start doing something about it. We need to start educating young children about the signs of domestic violence. Walker said she had been a victim of domestic violence and has taken classes on recognizing red flags. She told the Sentinel, it's time for people and women to start coming together, and unfortunately we live in a world where we're supposed to mind our own business. We're supposed to turn a blind eye when people are fighting. We're supposed to close our ears and forget that the neighbors are screaming at each other all night without reporting it, and that needs to come to a stop. She also said law enforcement has to take calls about people fighting seriously and dig deep to understand the underlying issues of conflict. So good for her. And there are two big issues when you look at these two cases and the other ones. People seeing the huge honking red flags, like in Melissa Sosa's case, but no one taking action. Not just Melissa, but again, all these people who knew this was going on. 
And I say again, if the guy with anger issues is threatening to kill the person and waving loaded guns around, it's time to stop pussyfooting around it and being diplomatic. I mean, how many signs do you need? I mean, that's a pretty glaring sign. And to start letting the cops know. And then there are the ones where the red flags are more subtle, but people are just clueless about it. And no, when it comes to abusive, controlling behavior, there are not two sides to every story. And if someone is being abused, they need to be supported and helped out of the situation. And Waterville... Eight years ago was the epicenter of, in 10 days, a woman who lived actually north of there and her two kids were killed by their dad who um, then killed himself. And then another guy, uh, just a week later or less than a week later, chased his wife down the street in Winslow and shot her in front of his kids and he was later shot by the police. And they had a rally in Waterville because the kind of the point was at the time, we have to get more men involved in it's not just this women's issue they really that only 75 people showed up at and i which they thought was great but i think i pointed out and maybe it was our eight way back with ayla reynolds or one of our episodes a long time ago it's funny you know that was that one it was episode um seven right the men who yes. killed but that they'll have a vigil like they had a vigil for melissa Sousa, and 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 hundreds of people will show up who didn't even know her but they have a rally trying to make people more aware of domestic violence, and they can't even get 100 people. I know. That's crazy. You know, and um, let me give the floor to Regina Rooney of the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence. And this was quoted in the Kennebec Journal after the Augusta double murder, you know, the one that no one saw coming. And Regina Rooney says, somebody, maybe not that family member, but somebody had some idea that things weren't right. She said, most domestic violence murders are committed by an abusive person determined to keep control of their victim. And also, I want to point out, not all controlling abuse will you see with black eyes and knuckle marks. And a lot of it is psychological and emotional abuse, constant texting or wanting to know where the person is or controlling someone's finances. There are a lot of things that aren't physical abuse, and people have to get away from that. But anyway, read The Gift of Fear. Anyway... Regina Rooney says, when we have a pattern that's so apparent, we need to ask questions about those folks who are doing that kind of harm and what is leading them to that place. Why does this person think they have the ultimate right to decide whether their partner, whether their family member lives or dies? Once the year ends, I'll try to find out how many. I mean, it seems like it's been. When you were talking about how there hasn't been a male victim, a woman that, that woman who, she just got convicted. Oh, yeah, that's right. And, um. She stabbed her husband. Yeah, she stabbed in front of their children. That's right. When was she, that? Uh, the, she did it two years ago, oh. but in October she just got convicted. I, her, if, um, her name was Candy Collins. Oh, yeah. If I said there hasn't been a no, man. No, you didn't say there hasn't. You just I said, said you it's rarely. Remember. Yeah, it's rare. rare. There's rarely. You uh, said you couldn't remember, and I was trying to remember, and then that just And also, and head. I'm not sure about that case, but in a lot of cases she where the woman mentioned. kills the man, it's because the woman's being abused. In I this case, I don't believe she was. She was. She was mentally ill. But she was mentally ill. She was felt like she was losing control, and she had lost custody of the children. Yeah, and just like a lot of the ma- men who... And I like, think she felt, from what I remember of it, I'm not excusing her in any way, shape, no. or form. I think it was horrible. I do think that she was paranoid, and um, her husband's mother worked for the sheriff's department or something, so she felt that, that she was being targeted or something. Yeah. She's just not well. Yeah. She's not a well person. It's sad. But it just seems like we've had a lot of murder suicides this year. I mean, that was four or five. Yeah, so far. we've had a lot. And so, in any case, 
Now it's your turn to segue from one domestic violence case yes, to another. Although this was going to be just an update, but it got more involved than that. Although I will have to do an update on this because this is this update is about Noah Gaston, who was also in our episode seven. Yeah. And he's on trial right I now. I think that's main men who kill the women who love them. Or women. No, main women and the men who, who kill them. Or yeah. Something, something oh, wait, like I wrote that. it. Okay. So, so way back in January of 2017, we did episode seven, which was titled Maine's Murderers and the Women Who Loved Them. Oh, That's yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. In that episode, I talked about Noah Gaston, who shot his wife, Alicia, because he said he thought she was an intruder. Since Noah Gaston has been on trial this past week, I thought I would do an update. But after listening to the original episode, I realized that the case is worth revisiting in more depth. Now that a lot more has happened, I have done a couple updates over the almost three years since we first released that episode, but I'm going to bring it all together in a main mini. I got my information from many news sources for this one, mostly the Portland Press-Herald, the Bangor Daily News, and also WCSH-TV. Mm. If you haven't listened to episode seven, or even Please if you have, <laughs> here's a refresher. Although the sound is bad. Yeah, by the way, sorry for the sound quality. I think we've gotten better since I then. I think we have. We were learning. Marginally. We're still learning. At about six in the morning on Thursday, January 14th of 2016, 33-year-old Noah Gaston said he heard noises downstairs that sounded like, quote, walkie-talkies and things moving hmm. in the family's Wyndham, Maine home. He later told police he checked on his daughters, ages 8 and 9, who were sleeping in their room across the hall, and grabbed his gun. As Noah stood at the top of the stairs, he fired at a person who was coming up the stairs, a person he said he thought was an intruder. In reality, the, quote, so-called intruder, as the Bangor Daily News wrote, <laughs> was his wife, Alicia, 34. Mm. According to an affidavit written by Maine State Police Detective Ethel Ross, Noah first told police that Alicia was halfway down the stairs when he shot her. Then he corrected himself and said she was at the bottom of the stairs. Police said that the evidence, which included blood splatter and gunshot residue, showed that she, Alicia, was almost to the top of the stairs when she was shot. Which means he would have seen her better, as we'll get into this. Noah told police that the couple's two-year-old son was sleeping in the bed with them, and he mis mistook the child for his wife. Thinking that she was asleep in bed, he assumed the person he saw was a stranger who had broken into the home. He told police it was dark, and Alicia had her head down as she came up the stairs towards him. Noah told police he had no reason to want Alicia dead. They had a great marriage and rarely fought. Their only problems were money-related. Indeed, neither Alicia nor Noah had jobs at the time of her death. Alicia homeschooled the children. Huh. Noah was an aspiring musician who... I shouldn't say us. Oh, I know, sorry. Alicia Well, I mean, we my views on homeschooling pretty much okay. were clear on the Turpin episode. Oh, that's true. Noah was an aspiring musician who wanted to start a commune of artists so he could devote more time to his hmm. music. I don't really have anything against that idea, per no. se, but you still have to work even you if you live in a work. commune. It's kind of like, in, and I didn't even talk about this one, but that one in Massachusetts where the aspiring children's yeah. author killed his wife and kids. It's like you can aspire to whatever, but you still have to put a roof you over pay your head. fucking bills. Right. And while the picture he painted for the police was rosy, acquaintances acquaintances told police that Noah was not thrilled with his marriage. He had an unsatisfying sex life. Mm. Alicia was not, quote, adventurous enough. Well, she probably didn't want to do a three-way with another exact woman. the same thing. Oh, did he did in episode seven. He said the exact Well, that's what guys thing. always mean when they say the woman he is an felt, adventurous. And he felt that she didn't support his music. 
Because she probably wanted to be able to feed the kids and keep a roof over yes. their head. Guessing. The, the eight-year-old daughter was awake the morning of her mother's death. When Detective Ross asked the child how often her parents argued, the girl said, quote, Sometimes you hear it seven times a week, and sometimes you hear it once or one time a month. And I will be using her <laughs> quotes again. I use them in episode seven because I liked her quotes. I can picture a kid that age yeah. saying that. She also told the detective on the morning her mother was shot, she heard her parents yelling in, quote, their scared voices. And she heard yelling, the baby gate falling, and, quote, my mom yells sort of more, my dad yelled louder, and I hear somebody tumble down the stairs, end quote. Ross wrote, during the interview, the eight-year-old told me that when she opened her bedroom door, she saw the gun on the floor in the hallway and described, quote, it was a stinky, like, weird smell in the air, which she went on to describe as the smell of mixed with a little blood and smoke. In the affidavit, friends who picked Noah up at the police station after he met with police on January 14th were interviewed. They told police that Noah was very calm, and he told his friends about a song he had written the day before, a song with lyrics about a bang and children plugging their ears. Mm. Noah Gaston was arrested January 22nd, 2016. He was not given bail. We have, we've discussed that people arrested for murder in Maine are rarely right. given bail. He spent three years in jail until his first trial, which started Monday, February 11th, 2019, which is, was my daughter's yes. During her opening statements, Assistant Attorney General Meg Ellum said that Noah was, quote, practically certain his wife would die from the close-range shotgun blast. And, quote, he saw in the illuminated bedroom that she wasn't in the bed. He didn't hear walkie-talkies or multiple intruders. He saw her as she entered the stairway, hmm. and he saw her when she was no more than 18 inches from the muzzle of his shotgun. This was a killing without justification. In his opening statements, defense attorney Rob Andrews, and I have, I have a friend named Rob Andrews. But oh, wow. Now. What a coincidence. Yes. Well, it's just that's who I picture now. I know. So Rob Andrews said that Noah was just, quote, defending his family and, quote, from his wife. He made a terrible mistake. He caused a terrible accident, and there was no way that this is anything other than a tragedy, but it's not a crime. He had to kill his family to defend his family. Like what they used to say about Vietnam, we had to burn down the village to protect the yeah. village or whatever. Though reports said Noah was emotionless during the opening statements, when the tape of his 911 call was played, in which the operator is coaching him in CPR, he started crying. And when the police officer, Justin Hudner, testified about Noah, quote, when he entered the room, he had no emotion on his face, just a blank look. But, you know, people are in shock and stuff. I don't. I don't. I honestly don't think that any, has any relevance to. No. I mean, you no. Can't Although I will say, I was watching the Preppy Murder documentary, and I remember when it all happened in 1986. But the videotape of Robert Chambers, mm -hmm. and this would have been less than 24 hours after he killed yes. her. That's almost a demeanor where you can judge because he was just very kind of carefree. Yeah. He was disdainful of her. He kind of dissed yeah. her aside from accusing her of attacking him sexually and Please. stuff. But like I don't give like when they say oh he was blank he showed no emotion blah 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 to me it's like everybody reacts differently but in something like the Robert Chambers thing where he's just being this kind of cocky 
you know, you'd think he was talking about somebody stealing his drink know, at the bar or something. Asshole. That's something where I feel like you can judge someone. Other witnesses testified to Noah's behavior as the paramedics were working on Alicia. They told the court that he didn't ask about Alicia's condition at the time. Mm. But he did ask Officer Hudner how badly she was hurt. So I don't... Is she going to die? Is she going to so, die? Yeah. yeah. That, first, yeah. that first day, Alicia's sister, Heather Gilbert, testified about her sister's marriage. She told the court that Alicia homeschooled the children, but tried to do what she could to eke out a living. Heather testified that Noah had recently lost his job and was having a hard time finding a new one. One of the defense attorneys, James Mason, mm. and now I picture like my friend Robbie Andrews the and the actor James yeah. Mason, asked Heather, is it your opinion that they had a loving relationship? And she said, yes. And then Mason asked, and that Noah Gaston loved Alicia? At this question, Heather paused and said, I don't know. Mm. The second day of trial, Justice Michaela Murphy abruptly stopped the trial shortly before the state of Maine's chief medical examiner, Mark Flomenbaum, <laughs> was to take the stand. Dr. Flomenbaum had conducted the autopsy of Alicia Gaston. At the time, it was very mysterious. The lawyers and judge were meeting in chambers for hours that morning, and then Justice Murphy dismissed the jury for the day. The trial did not resume on the following day, which was Wednesday. Then on Thursday, February 14th, the mystery about the delay was revealed when Justice Murphy declared a mistrial and the reasons were made public. Dr. Flomenbaum was reviewing his notes, and after looking at a photograph of the wound, he decided his original conclusion was inaccurate. And this whole wound, if I get it wrong, people, I know, okay, I'm, right. I'm going to, I kind of figured it out, so just bear with me. Okay. He originally described the trajectory of the pellets as very slightly downward. That was a quote. On a side note, this must be some kind of forensic term, but to my ear, it sounds contradictory. Very slightly downward. I don't know. Yeah. In any well, case, just a little tiny yes, bit down. Yes. Yes. Yeah. In any case, the state was basing some of their case on this fact. Dr. Flomamon told Meg Elam that he now thought the angle was more like 45 degrees as opposed to something less acute. I think that's yes, the right word. Yeah. Which is what very slightly downward means. I think it's like 30 degrees or something. Mm. What this means is that Alicia could have been further down the stairs if the angle was okay, uh, more acute. Yeah. So if the angle was 45 degrees as opposed to like... 30 or less, um, right. meaning the defense's claim that Noah may have not been able to see her that well made more sense. Apparently, he changed it to slightly downward, which he claimed was a clarification, not a correction. Uh, so he changed it from very slightly downward to, to just slightly okay. downward. So it meant it was going more in a straight, right. which actually helps the state because it means she was closer to him. Right. But the very slightly downward means that he, she was she would have been further down. Right. Assistant AG Ellum immediately told the defense team in the court, as was her duty, that he had made this, like, right. oops, I, I, I don't know that's yeah. wrong. Defense attorney Rob Andrews filed for mistrial. He argued that the defense relied on Dr. Flomenbaum's opinion as infallible, even though he also said that a ballistics expert had confirmed the angle at 45 degrees. Mm. Justice Murphy said, since when does the defense take the position that evidence from the state is infallible? Yeah, no shit. I think one thing we've learned is that forensic evidence is never infallible. AAG Elam said that there was plenty of other evidence to support the state's case and there shouldn't be a mistrial. She said there was evidence of blood-producing event at the top of the stairs. Mm. I know, I thought that was interesting. There were test results that showed lead only on the top two stairs, which suggested that the muzzle was 18 inches or less from Alicia when she was shot. Mm. Elam suggested the court, quote, go back to where we were before Dr. Flobenbaum said 45 degrees. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, can't we just go back? Yeah, he ever yeah. said that. Justice Murphy said that would mean Dr. Flomenbaum would be testifying to an opinion that he had discarded. Justice Murphy said, quote, if Dr. Flomenbaum truly believes it was 45 degrees and the defense expert believes that, then the truth has changed. The science has changed, and shouldn't the jury have that information? Attorney Rob Andrews said, quote, I can't go to the jury and say we're relying on the state's credibility. Now the state's credibility is wrong. Justice Murphy said to simply allow the trial to go forward would cast a shadow on any decision reached by the jury. The judge said there was no misconduct on anyone's part. She said, quote, it seems to be that everyone misunderstood or misapprehended what was in the report. The question is, how important is that to the case? She also said, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but to describe what happened as inopportune is sort of the understatement of my last few years of work as a judge. It should not have happened this way. It did happen this way. It is not going to happen this way again. The Attorney General's office released a statement on Friday, February 15th that said the court found that neither the Attorney General's office nor the office of the Chief Medical Examiner did anything wrong in this matter, and the state stands by the court's determination. And with that, Noah Gaston was sent back to jail to await his next trial, Mm. which would start Wednesday, November 13th. Obviously, he was not granted bail. He's been in jail. Yeah. In the meantime, the court ordered a deposition so Dr. Flomenbaum could explain his change of opinion, which he said wasn't a change of opinion, just a clarification. Mm. Hopefully, that evidence will come out at trial, but so far it hasn't uh, about what he said right. in the deposition. A legislator, Jeff Evangelos, from Friendship Name, oh, friendship. filed a complaint against Dr. Flomenbaum because of his side business as an expert witness in cases across the country. The Maine Attorney General's office has an ongoing investigation into that. Evangelos told the Portland Press-Herald that he thinks that Flomenbaum's extracurricular work hurts his credibility, which I don't really see why. Yeah. And I'm sure in Maine there isn't a lot of, it's not like it's really busy. Right. So, yeah, whatever. Right. We only have and a lot of 20-whatever murders a year. And I a mean, lot of those, I mean, in crime itself, but the, right. a lot of those guys do, do that, men right. and women. So. I don't know how it hurts somebody's credibility to be I think a witness. Just, when, when people get mad, I think a lot of times they're just jealous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's the case when people get mad about Not me. Jealous, but they're just like, why does he get to get paid by no. the state? Well, and I go around think, and make extra money. I also think there's this misperception that... Expert witnesses are kind of prostitutes for yeah. whatever side is paying them, where in reality, most of them, I mean, you have to prove your credibility. Yeah. So well, you have to you have to have somebody who's an expert to right. explain the evidence. Right. Whatever. Before the mo- this most recent trial, defense attorneys Rob Andrews and James Mason filed a request for a change of venue for the trial. But a jury was selected in Portland in the... So it's in Cumberland County, right? Yes, and there was no problem picking a jury, even though the trial was only nine months ago or whatever. Yeah, well, it's a big county. It spreads all the way to the west. Obviously not a lot of listeners of our show. Right. And also, nobody reads the newspaper anymore. Half the people don't watch TV. They don't know. If you said Noah Gaston to most of the people in Maine, they wouldn't know who you were talking about. So it's like 1982, you know? I know. Anyway. Alicia Gaston's family hasn't said much over the years. Before the first trial, Alicia's sister-in-law wrote an email to the media. Quote, initially it was very difficult to process what happened. As a family, we decided to hold off judgment until the facts came out. Once the facts came out, it was clear to us that the intruder story wasn't true. It's been three years since he took Alicia from us. 
The grief is very difficult, but the process being dragged out for three years because of Noah's refusal to take responsibility for his actions is unbearable. It is our hope that the legal system will make sure the truth comes out so there will be closure. Mm -hmm. And Saturday, November 10th, would have been Alicia Gaston's 38th birthday. Wow. On Wednesday, November 13th, 2019, again, for those of you listening, like, a few years from now, because yeah. these are on when when I finally get the set. No, I'm no, Alicia's sister Heather Gilbert testified. So the same people testified right the first day of this trial. Heather Gilbert was on the stand. She testified to a conversation that she had with Alicia shortly before her death. "Quote: She didn't really say much. It was kind of like if we believed in divorce, we wouldn't be married right now. And when I read that, I said if she if she believed in divorce, she wouldn't be dead right now. Right. And you said I texted it to you, and you said I said the same and thing. I, and I just want to say not to downplay anyone's religious beliefs, but divorce is something you need to believe in. You, you especially if you have children. Right. Right. That it's this in." controvertible idea once you marry somebody you have to be with that person no matter what you know ideally you wouldn't marry somebody that would end up happening with but it happens you have to be able to get out yes, of it yes you do but i like the way she said we and now when you watch it on tv and stuff they say she didn't believe in divorce but when she talked to her sister she said, said we, we. In her opening statement, AAG Meg Ellum told the jury about the blood splatter, or spatter, is it spatter or splatter, and lead evidence. Noah's changing story to the police and all the stuff that came out in the first trial. She also told them about the conversation with the two friends who picked him up at the police station, the guys who told about his song. Mm -hmm. He told them the intruder story, his two friends, and then he said, that's what I have to say if I want to see my kids. Mm. From reports in the Portland Press-Herald, both opening statements sound pretty much the same as the first trial. Defense attorney Rob Andrews said that police had an agenda to advance their theory of domestic violence and ignored evidence that would show Noah did not mean to kill his wife. He said, quote, I'm going to argue that you shouldn't trust what the state of Maine says, because when this evidence is all in, I think you'll understand how the evidence has been manipulated and how people who have been asked to speak are either ignoring important facts or have chosen to intentionally disregard them. Just like in his first trial, Noah cried as he heard his 911 call hmm. play. When Heather Gilbert took the stand, she testified that though the family had money issues, she had never seen and was unaware of any violence or abuse. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Ms. You, Gift of Fear one. Yeah. She said, quote, Alicia was very loving toward him. She expressed love by doing everything she could to make the marriage work, to make the house stay afloat. Um, Wyndham police officer Justin Hudner testified again. The recording taken from his body microphone was played for the court. Noah told Officer Hudner what happened several times. One telling, he said Alicia came around the corner at the bottom of the stairs while he, Noah, was at the top. Then he said, uh, I don't think that's accurate. I think when I got to the top of the stairs with a gun, I don't think there was anyone on the stairs. I don't think she had started. By the time I kind of raised the gun, she was like halfway up the stairs or something, or a couple of stairs up. Mm. Rob Andrews asked Hudner, is it possible he was inferring things? And Officer Hudner said yes. Meg Allen asked, is it possible he was also making stuff up? And Officer Hudner said yes. 
talking about Noah. On the second day of Noah's trial, Dr. Mark Flomenbaum took the stand. Flomenbaum. He said he has always believed the trajectory of the gunshot was at a 30-degree angle. And then I put, really, I am so fucking confused by this whole part of the case yes. right now. It seems like it's just a very specific semantic yes, it is. thing that we there's there's other stuff like that in science that a term to, to right. us doesn't make sense but to them it has a specific right. meaning right and we're but nobody and it's explained his job it. to be as specific as possible but nobody and right nobody who's right who's to say a reporting on this a slight, very slightly angle means that nobody who's reporting this. on this that we know of maybe they did and we haven't seen it did the research to find out what all this means Dr. Fulmanbaum also testified about the size of the wound, the buckshot spatter, and the plastic part of the shotgun shell that had entered Alicia's body with the pellets. All of those things are indications that Noah was 18 inches or closer when he shot the gun. Um, also, no mention was made in court about him being the reason for the initial mistrial, Dr. Fulmanbaum, which I guess makes sense because the fact right. of the mistrial is probably not relevant. And right. It might influence the jury's um, decision. May, may, it's possible that they were told we can't yeah that wouldn't surprise me one of the things noah told police according to recordings played at the trial was that he didn't recognize his wife because he wasn't wearing his glasses Uh. main state police detective ethel ross said that noah's driver's license did not require him to wear glasses while he drove suggesting his eyesight was good enough that he could have seen the person coming up the stairs was alicia and i just want to interject my driver's license does require i wear glasses and not that he and I have the same eyesight issues, but without my glasses on, if I were on the stairs in the dark, I would still, I think, be able to perceive well, as somebody with my family. I was going to say number. that my driver's license does not require me to wear glasses, but sometimes when I don't have them on, I can't see. I can see things close to me. Actually, it's worse when I have them on because they're reading glasses, like at work. Right. I'll have them on, and somebody will walk up to me, and they'll just be like a so blob. So I guess it's all a matter of. Yeah, um, whatever. But but it's a bullshit. You know somebody by more than their exact facial well, features. And the other thing is, just your, like your with Oscar Pistorius. Oh, you're you're woken up in the middle of the night. The person who is normally next to you in bed isn't he there. He thought she was because the two-year-old was there, though. Mm, same difference. That's what came out in trial. That's right. one of the things that but, I didn't have. A- but part of it is one of the issues with having a loaded gun in your house when there are kids. No shit. We, talk, but, we talk, said the same thing. I know, but still, it's like, just like shooting a deer, you need to recognize your yes, target. no shit. Detective Ross also testified about how she and other investigators tried to recreate the different scenarios with different lighting to see how hard it was to recognize someone on the stairs. She said that no matter how dim the light was, and there was a floodlight outside that gave some illumination, the person at the top of the stairs was able to recognize someone at the bottom. I wish I was at the trial so I could see how they explained how they right. did the test. Does Have they ever said, like, what kind of house it is? They showed it. It's just a little, little cape. cape. Yeah. With a, it looks like the stairs go like up the a middle. Central the, stair, yes. Yeah. They said that, um, the, the state police said, investigators said they used a mannequin in some of them. What I want to know is how did they, like, if you, if your brain, if you know who you're working with, like if you're working with Bob, you're going to know that's him. Right. You know, it's hard. You have right. to be like, have someone that's a surprise coming up the stairs. Right. Right. But anyways, I don't know how they did it. Um, also the prosecution said during their opening statement that Alicia's EBT, which is electronic benefit, transfer Mm. card was found at the top of the stairs and in my first report on this three years ago 
I mentioned that there was evidence that Alicia had called the automated line to check the balance of their card only minutes before. Right, and that's what's used for what used to be called food stamps for people who aren't familiar. Uh, It's, you know, it's a debit card that gets loaded. She probably went upstairs and said, you fucking asshole, we have like $3 left and we have kids to feed. I'm sure that's what happened. (laughs) No, I mean, something like that. Friday, November 15th was the third day of trial. Detective Ross was cross-examined by the defense team. Mm. They grilled her about whether or not all the possible evidence was collected. They wanted to know how long did it take for police to decide this was a crime instead of an accident. This line of questioning was designed to suggest that police jumped to the conclusion that this was a domestic violence murder rather than a tragic accident. Aren't police, haven't we heard time and time again that until, that police determine something's a homicide, which is could be an accident, well, but... Okay, yeah, go ahead. Detective Ross said, said, quote, well, we were investigating a shooting, trying to figure out what happened, and during my interview with Noah, I listened to what he said. If you're looking for a specific date, I don't know. Right. Yeah, I mean, they were investigating a shooting. It wasn't somebody, like, you know, falling in a pond and drowning. Even then, they they would investigate that, you know? It's like... You know, sometimes if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Okay, Dr. Phil. <laughs> also entered into evidence was a recording of the nine-year-old daughter's interview uh. with police. She said, quote, I think my mom screamed like right before the bullet hit her. I don't know. I didn't want to hear much or see much more. So, and then she trailed off. Mm. That's so sad. I know. Those two little girls. And I mean, also at least the two-year-old doesn't remember. And also you think, too... Not only did she have to experience that, and, uh, and, and this, th- there's no one to blame for this but the father, of course, but yes. now she's in the position of having to testify, and she's probably well, old re- enough. No, that was a recording. Well, I mean, not testify, but talk to the cops yes. or something. And she's probably smart enough and old enough to know that she could get her dad in trouble yes. with what she says. That's right. Also testifying was Detective Lawrence Rose of the Maine State Police, who worked with uh, Ethel Ross. He testified about standing in the master bedroom at the same time of morning, the few days they did it in the morning, a few days after right. the, no, the shooting. The floodlight gave enough light in the bedroom so he could see details of the room, which, of course, were kept exactly the same way. They took, mm-hmm. you know, everybody out of the house right after and locked the house. So everything right. was the same as it was that morning. Detective Rose said Noah had to, had to know his wife was not in the bed. He said, I could see the bed. I could tell it was unmade. I could tell the way the blankets were messed up. He could even see the pacifier left in the blankets by the baby of the family. Meg Elam said, quote, so it wasn't too dark for you to see that binky? Hmm. And Rose said, no, it wasn't. The prosecutors are going to bring a model of a staircase to court Monday, which is today. Oh. I could have gone, but this is the only day we have to record. Oh. But I would have gone to court if I... That'd be fun, and I could have, too, since I'm, I had today off. Oh, well. We could have. Anyway. We should sometimes. I will have to give the ending in our next episode if he's found guilty. Um, I think he's facing 25 to life for yeah. murder. It's... Very hard to prove what somebody's perception of something is. As you have said many times, the people who are saying there was no violence in the marriage, they were extremely unhappy. There were a lot of indications that he was not only an unhappy person, but he um, was kind of a narcissist. They did not have a happy marriage. He wanted to do his music and have his commune and do all this shit, and his wife was holding him down with her kids and all that. How often is there domestic violence in these things, like this type of crime? I mean, you talked about two that were, that had domestic violence. There are a lot Uh, of these guys like Chris 
what's his name? I will say Chris Pratt, the actor. Chris Watts. Right, Charles he, Stewart. They're not. They're right. not violent. My, uh, Peterson, Scott Peterson. They build it up. They keep it inside. Nah. In fact, I recommend, although you, you keep you saying it's out of print. No. Or, yeah, you had to buy a used library copy. Erased by Marilee Strong, because we're recording in my living room, so I happen to have it right here, where she goes into this whole thing, and basically... The guy, the narcissist, sees these encumbrances as keeping him from having the life he wants. Yes. And they don't do a lot of thinking about what's going to happen after, like, as we know, Chris Watts. He didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. He thought people would just believe him that his wife took off with theirs and stuff. And when people, and I almost think the fact that she or they or whoever didn't believe in divorce doesn't really matter. Although I, I would think in 2019 it doesn't only one person has to believe in divorce. Well, but 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 I was going to say a lot of these guys they don't want to get divorced anyway because then they have to pay child yes. support and then they have the nagging ex-wife who's always bugging them about the same shit she was bugging them about when they were married. And we talked about this when at first more when it first came out when I first talked about it it didn't come up as much in the stuff I read recently they were church members uh, they were fairly religious it wasn't in the papers this time and I didn't have time to really go back and look at the original people said he had unorthodox religious beliefs and he used to like talk about them at work all the time and annoy people well that sounds like a narcissist and um, it sounded kind of like the it's guy like from the, the, that sculptor the man right, the visualization guy. this week he'll probably have the trial will be over and we'll find out and we right. can talk about it next and while time. it's talking of, and you know and just briefly because I know we've talked a lot about it but the red flag type of thing is not being physical just physical violence but somebody with beliefs these absolute beliefs where people must conform to yes. them is an issue I'd like to see where it went from them as a couple not believing in a divorce to her to the narrative now of her not believing in a divorce yeah I know because I wonder how much because he must have ruled the roost. But also, in a lot of these, like, eraser murders, the guy does have this fantasy life in mind that doesn't involve yes. the wife and kids. And we've joked about it before, about how many of these guys were unemployed. I know. And how many of these guys had these little fanciful dreams of things. And I'm not saying people shouldn't have dreams. Like, for instance, my dream to be somebody who can just write books yeah. for a living and not have to work a quote-unquote real job, but yet I work real jobs you have to. so I can live in a house and eat food I and, know. you know, not live under a bridge where I wouldn't be able to do any writing at all. And that's kind of the point, that you have responsibilities as an adult, and these guys, many, many, many of these guys resent those responsibilities, yes. and the way to get rid of them is to get rid of the what they see as the moving mouth yes. and everything, a lot of them blame the wife the for the fact, wife. right? Blame the wife for the fact that they have kids. Yeah, like they feel some ownership of the kids and use the terms about them wanting to see their kids and blah blah blah. But they don't want responsibility for the kids. Yes, they don't want to have to pay child support, even though if they were living together as a married family, they would be supporting those children if they worked. Yeah, but in any case, Anyways. yes, that was a good update. It cleared Thank up some you. questions. Um, so this next one is um, kind of a main mini, too. This is about stuff that's going on, and it's right in the town right next to my... In fact, if I lived 
a few a houses down right the street. Oh, uh, yeah, you would live in this town. And this is a little different from some of our other stuff. Yes, it is. It's not a murder or anything like that. It's kind of it's more of a, a ranty me thing. Too era, a Me Too era it's issue. It's very ranty. All right. I will rant. Right up our, I'll rant um, too. So I got the information from the story from many places because it did make national headlines. First and foremost is my old standby, the Portland Press-Herald. Yep. Also the Bangor Deli News, WCSH-TV. The Washington Post. Whoa. BBC News. Ooh, big time. BuzzFeed. Wow. And Teen Vogue. All here in Little Maine. This past September 16th, 2019, young women students at Cape Elizabeth High School walked into the women's restroom and saw a post-it note on the mirror. In block letters, the note read, there's a rapist in our school and you know who it is. Mm -hmm. And Cape Elizabeth is a very affluent One of the state towns. Yeah. Yeah. uh, On the coast. Mm -hmm. It's very pretty. Beautiful. Eventually, a student removed the note and turned it into the office. Other similar... I know. Other similar notes appeared in the girls' restrooms after that first one was removed. Soon, the rumor mill started grinding. You know how kids that age love drama. Yeah. But also, almost as much as kids our age. Yep. But also, teenagers keep a lot of secrets from adults. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that kids, I remember when I was in high school. Yeah. Kids, girls that got raped. There were things happening that adults don't know about. Stories were swapped and people talked. Mm -hmm. One male student felt he was being targeted. Mm. Well, if the shoe fits. We'll we'll talk more about that later. And his parents complained to the school that the note singled him out. You the know, note, our son is a rapist, and this girl's hey, putting these... I'm sorry. We'll talk about Go it later. Yeah. The note itself was the tool of a bully, the parents told the school officials. The school had been doing an investigation about the notes in the meantime. Principal Jeff Shedd and other administrators spoke with over 40 students about the issues behind the note. By searching through security videos, it was determined that the creator of the original note, and I'm, I'm sorry if I pronounced her first name wrong, it's, I'm assuming it's Ayla, it's A... E-L-A. So mm-hmm. I'm going to call her Ayla if I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Might be Aaliyah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's not. Ayla? I don't know. Anyway. It's going to be Ayla to yeah. me for now. Uh, Ayla Mansman, a sophomore at Cape Elizabeth High School. Ayla has long been an activist for issues of sexual assault and support for survivors. Her mother, Shayelle Norris, runs an organization called Safe Bay, which is Safe, B-A-E, and I don't know what that stands for. It, it's in caps. Mm-hmm. But Bay is also what people call baby, or, you know, their, their girlfriend or boyfriend. Okay. Now, um, which advocates for sexual assault survivors. Because of her mother's activism, Ayla herself became a vocal advocate and a person who was sought out by victims of assault who felt she was a safe person with whom they could share their stories. According to the Washington Post, Ayla recently won national recognition in U.S. Cellular 16 Under 16, Teens who, quote, personify the future of good. I think that was like last year, but it mm-hmm. might have been earlier this year. In the spring of 2019, Ayla organized a summit called Consent, The Way Life Should Be. <laughs> and The Way Life Should Be is the main slogan. Yeah. This was an event award attended by over 750 students from Maine. Wow. And its aim was to prevent sexual assault by raising awareness. Initially, the post-it note was treated like a Title IX complaint. An informal Title IX complaint, which is to say school officials focused on what the note was saying as opposed to the fact that it was written. Right. And as a sidebar, Title IX is a 1972 clause of the Federal Education Amendments, 
which says any education program or activity that receives federal assistance cannot discriminate on the basis of gender. Yes. Most people think of it in terms of college sports, but it basically means girls must have the same opportunities and rights as boys in any public school or... And any of you girls or women out there who play sports, you have Title IX at your schools have Title IX to thank for it, and that's one reason it's... Because and it's still uh, because it's a in the 70s, battle right because to in the seven, comply right in the seventies there are a lot of boys sports teams and not a lot of girls sports teams and Title IX forced schools to start providing that That's opportunity right. for young women. Principal Shedd wrote a letter to the school community that read, in part, we began investigating immediately with two paramount questions in mind: Are there young people who have been victims of rape by one of our students? Are our students safe? But soon the focus was shifted to the note writer herself. Yep. Ayla Mansman. Mm-hmm. Principal Shedd wrote that the posting of the note caused, quote, the tides of polarization and brought out, quote, tribalism. And I want to say something, just like any other, I don't want to diss Cape Elizabeth, mm-hmm. but it is, as we said, very affluent. But just like any other, especially a public school in an affluent area, there are different yes. strata. And there probably is tribalism going on. I'm sure. And it's not between ethnic groups because Maine is very white. Because we, we don't have before. any. Yeah. But there are, there are right. people even, that don't have money in Cape Elizabeth, yes. and there are people that have like, a lot of money. Even in our high school in Augusta, there were the rich kids. There were the, the French-Canadian kids. I mean, there was – I mean, not that the groups didn't mix – but there were divisions. All, and, all, and all high schools have yeah. them anyway. Yeah. So. And also, uh, issues of gender and sexual issues, there are going to be divisions. And we will yes, talk about that. Principal Shedd said the note constituted bullying. He wrote that it was, quote, a pattern of expression directed at a student that made an intimidating educational environment. He said the note was directed at a specific person, and everyone knew who that person was, who so hmm. was clearly bullying. Hmm. In a later letter to students and parents, Shedd wrote that Ayla and other girls who posted notes were, quote, well motivated with good intentions, mm. quote, but they, but they went about it wrong. They should have used the proper channels. But according to the Press Herald, the students had tried to discuss sexual assault issues with school officials months before without much success. On June 11, 2019, Ayla and two other students addressed the school board about their concerns. One former student, Lily Frame, read a statement written by Grace Roberts, who also had attended Cape Elizabeth High School. Uh, apparently, Grace didn't feel she could she could do it, but she wrote the statement, and right. her friend read it. Grace described an incident in which a male student threatened to attack the school and made threats about her at the same time. The same male student had sexually assaulted her previously, and she had not reported it. But after his threat, she went to the school administration and told them that he had attacked her. In February of 2018, the boy was suspended from school for his threats. Grace said that the principal told her guns had been confiscated from the boy's home. She was upset that no one had told her about the threat against her. The Press Herald reported that Cape Elizabeth police had no record of threats being made toward the school at that time. There was a discussion of gun control in a class that precipitated a complaint about, quote, a suspicious conversation in February of 2018. However, police said that there were no threats and no weapons taken from anyone. So... 
the girl was either heard stuff wrong or something. Right. But she was still upset because the guy had apparently attacked her. The school superintendent, Donna Wolfram, and Principal Jeff Shedd wouldn't discuss the matter because of privacy issues, but Shedd told the Press Herald, quote, all issues of reported possible violence are taken seriously, and I can't speak to it beyond that. Mm -hmm. Another student who spoke at that school board meeting in June is a current student at Cape Elizabeth High School, Christina Geekus. She told the board in the fall of 2018 that she had reported a sexual assault that took place during a sleepover. She told the Press Herald that it happened in 2017, and though she spent the night crying, she didn't realize what had happened was something that she should report. Christina told the school board, quote, I was told not to put my mental energy into my assault. I was told that he may have thought it was a romantic way to wake me up. Ugh. This happened while I was asleep, the assault. When I tried to to shine a light on what happened to me and tried to explain that I was brushed off and the topic kept getting changed. So I just wanted to inform you guys and say that I think more needs to be done around mandated reporting in the school and how important it is. And that's the end. The press held reported that Christina had recently discussed the incident with police but did not file a formal complaint. Another student who spoke at the meeting was interviewed by the press herald but asked to be anonymous because she is still in school and the student who assaulted her is still attending mm -hmm. the same school. I'm going to quote the press herald article because the wording is ambiguous, but I think it means that this young woman was assaulted by the same guy who assaulted Christina Geekus. The article said, quote, her case involved the same male student and initially she reported it to social worker. So I'm assuming the same male student, they mean the same male, right. but it isn't clear. It's bad writing. So I'm assuming they mean the same kid right. who insulted Christina. In any case, the girl reported her assault to the school social worker. She didn't want to make a formal complaint, but she didn't want to have to be around her, her attacker. Right. She said, quote, I was like, okay, I guess I can't do anything about it, so I'll just deal with it, end quote. Mm -hmm. A student told the Press Herald that since she talked about the school social workers at the meeting, even though she mentioned no names, she was told that she would have to deal with the school nurse or the middle school social worker if she needed help for the coming school year. Like wow. the social workers don't want to talk to her anymore. Wow. The social workers wouldn't talk to the paper, nor would the Title IX coordinator for the school, citing federal law. But other administrators insist the school district took the students' concerns to heart after that meeting. School board chairman... After the school board meeting or after she met after, with the social worker? After the school board meeting. Okay. School board chairwoman... Measley, I think, yeah. Hubs, told the Press Herald, quote, I have had conversations with both the superintendent and the Title IX coordinator to review procedures in the event of sexual harassment claims and ensure that they are being followed. I was satisfied that every necessary protocol was followed every step of the way, and then it was done with great sensitivity, mm -hmm. end quote. This past summer, after that school board meeting in June, a subcommittee was formed to review the new policy that was adopted at the meeting. Only one student was able to participate, though several were asked. There was also a two-hour training for faculty and administrators to make sure they understood what the expectations are for mandatory reporting. Mm -hmm. This is the federal law that teachers, administrators, and other staff at school are required to report any credible suspicion or report abuse, sexual or otherwise, to police or school officials. Shale Norris, Ayla's mother, who, remember, is the founding executive director of Safe Bay, told the Press Herald, Updating the policy is great. However, I think you miss the mark when you don't involve stakeholders. There is no opportunity to engage students who are the most affected. I just think that's highly re-victimizing. Mm. One of the things the email to the school community that the principal wrote after the post-it notes said was that the notes implied the school wasn't doing anything about sexual assault. 
All they said is you know who it is. Right. But Shedd said the school could not rush to judgment and had to follow protocol. One of the other girls who posted notes spoke with the Press Herald. She wanted to stay anonymous because she was afraid of retaliation from other students if they found out who she was. She said she posted the notes to honor the survivors of rape who don't feel safe at school or support it. She told the Press Herald the notes referred to a specific student who was a different person than the boy who attacked Christina Gakis. The student said, quote, what I wanted to happen through those sticky notes was acknowledgement this is not our first attempt to have a conversation with the school administration. The goal with the sticky notes was to spark that conversation, end quote. This article that I was just, just talking about, their concern, appeared in the Friday, October 4th edition of the Press Herald. That same day, Ayla was suspended for three days for bullying. Mm. Her suspension was supposed to start the following Monday, October 7th. Her parents appealed the suspension in writing and were told Ayla could attend school while the appeal was pending. Ayla told the Press Herald that she was, her word, confused by the charge of bullying because she didn't name anyone specific in her note. She said, quote, I was really hoping to spark a conversation between students and the administration. I was told someone made a complaint that I was bullying them, so I thought, why is this person self-identifying as a racist? The BBC reported that Ayla told Business Insider, I was really surprised that my school took that report and decided to open an investigation into whether or not I'm a bully versus opening an investigation onto whether or not this person who self-identified is a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Shale Norris, her mother, told the press herald that Ayla admitted that she left some of the notes in the girls' rooms, but was told by school officials that Ayla would not be punished for writing the note. Then, on the same day as the article came out about students being critical of how the school officials handle sexual assaults, Ayla was taken out of the classroom and told she would be suspended. Mm. Shale Norris told the Press Herald that school officials and police had met with her daughter three times since between September 16th, the post-it note day, and September 26th. And in a September 26th meeting, the school officials tried to get Ayla to tell them who the other two students were who posted the notes, but Ayla wouldn't rat them out. In the 2018 to 2019 school year, according to Press Herald's research, the Cape Elizabeth School District investigated eight possible violations of Title IX. Seven of those were having to do with sexual harassment or assault. The findings were, were that in four of those cases, it was more likely than not that violations occurred. The details of these cases are protected by privacy and employment laws. The day after Ayla Mansman was told she was going to be suspended, her mother, Shal Norris, told the Press Herald that she was going to contact the, the American Civil Liberties Union because she thought Ayla's free speech right had been violated by the punishment. Donna Wolfram, the school superintendent, told WCSH that the students should have used another way to express their concern over sexual hmm. assault. She said the notes, quote, had an adver- had adverse effect on other students and had a rapist. And had required a lot of time investigating. The school department told News Center Maine in a statement, It is important to understand, however, that when a student's speech bullies another student, we are required by law and by the school board to take prompt action, even if that same student has also spoken out on a matter of public concern, end quote. But Shale Norris sees the danger and the precedent her daughter's suspension might set. She said, I think this could prevent any survivors from coming forward. They, school officials, want to tell everyone the school is perfect and safe. But no school is completely safe. This is an issue in every community. What we're trying to do is have the district understand their obligations and train staff to handle the issue. 
On Monday, October 7th, about 50 students walked out of school to protest Ayla's suspension, as well as the two other girls who have not been named. So they did find out who those two other girls right. were and suspended them as well. Shale Norris did call the ACLU, and they responded. The main chapter filed a motion with U.S. District Court for the District of Maine asking to delay Ayla's suspension. The ACLU's position is that the court suspension violated Ayla's First Amendment right to free speech and her suspension is punishment for talking to the media. Allison Bea, executive director for the Maine ACLU, told Teen Vogue in, in an email, the student is punishing AM, who's Ayla, for attempting to talk about an issue of real concern to herself and other students. More and more young people are leading the way and calling on us all to have badly needed conversations about difficult issues. Instead of trying to silence them, it is our responsibility as adults to give them a safe forum in which to be heard. Unfortunately, Cape Elizabeth administrators took a much different tack. The school's decision to suspend AM will have a chilling effect on other students and make them hesitant to speak up about sexual assault for fear of being punished. When asked why she left the post-it notes, Ayla told Teen Vogue in an interview, quote, initially the whole idea was for the notes to be a conversation starter. Aaliyah told the magazine about a meeting on June 11th and how later in a private meeting with administrators, she was told that the mandated reporting and Title IX policies are confusing, but they were working on clarifying those things with staff. Ayla said, quote, from my standpoint, advocating for these survivors, that wasn't what I wanted to hear. I didn't know what I wanted to hear, but ultimately, this is their job. This is what they get paid to do. To say, I didn't know, to me, isn't an appropriate response, mm-hmm. which she's right. Yeah. Emma Bond, one of the attorneys representing Ayla, told the Washington Post, people don't speak out about sexual assault because they're worried they will be retaliated mm-hmm. against by people in positions of authority. Mm. To have disciplinary action taken against someone who the school thinks didn't speak out in just the right way, that sends a message that maybe you should just be quiet about it. Shell said, Shell Norris, in the same article of Washington Post, that her daughter agreed to fight the suspension because the stakes are much higher than just a school suspension. Shell said, I told her, Bunny, this is so much bigger than you and I. <laughs> they are trying to silence people. In the letter Principal Shedd wrote to Ayla about her suspension, he warns her against any future actions of this sort. End quote, mm. lest she be suspended again or even expelled. Emma Bond told the Washington Post that the phrase of this sort is worrisome because it is so vague, she's, this is her talking, it could be reasonably interpreted to refer to any kind of advocacy. We do not want schools or any government making these vague pronouncements about what is permissible when it comes to speech and what is not. On October 13th, the ACLU filed a lawsuit against Cape Elizabeth High School saying the school violated Ayla Mansman's First Amendment right to free speech and her protection from retaliation under Title IX. They also filed a motion for a restraining order to prevent Ayla's suspension. The superintendent, Donna Wolfram, had denied the appeal that Ayla's parents had filed, but the school agreed to hold off on the punishment until the judge ruled. And the week prior to the filing... Principal Shedd sent another letter to the school community telling them the school has received threats and the student who felt he was the one referred to in the notes had missed eight days of school because he feared for his safety. His parents said the note incident was bullying. Donna Wolfram stuck to her guns about bullying, saying in a letter to Ayla that in, a, in private meetings, Ayla had mentioned the name of a specific student. Wolfram said in the letter that the decision to suspend Ayla had been made before the newspaper article came out. BuzzFeed News quoted court records 
regarding the boy who Ayla says, quote, self-identified. In their arguments, the administrator said the notes caused an investigation that, quote, stirred up a hornet's nest of gossip and rumor around the school. Hmm. And here is a quote from that court record. Eventually, a certain male student, identified by parties as student one, experienced what could be described as ostracism by his peers. Upset by his experience, student one remained out of school for several days. Student one's family informed the school that they considered the entire incident to be a matter of bullying, and the school administrators ultimately decided that they agreed with that characterization. And affidavits that were submitted as evidence, several school administrators mentioned a, quote, incident between student one, the boy, and a girl, student two. This incident involved police. Student two did not pursue charges against student one, but she did get a protection order against him that is still active and expires at the end of his current school year. So he's supposedly the victim of bullying. He has a protection order against him because of something he did to a girl. So that's probably why people think he is a Mm-hmm. Wolfman wrote, in conclusion, I hope that you have learned from this experience that while advocacy of, ide- of ideas is critical to our democratic society, spreading rumors about particular individuals is destructive and cannot be tolerated. Mm-hmm. I encourage you to continue to advocate for issues you feel passionate about, but do so in an appropriate manner. Mm-hmm. It's Kafka-esque. Monday, October 21st, were or- the oral argument in front of Judge Lance Walker. He focused mainly on two issues. One, if the note named or indicated a specific person. And two, if there were any time, place, or manner considerations that made restricting free speech legal. The Press Herald article about the hearing reminds us that there was a 1969 Supreme Court ruling, Tinker v. Des Moines, that found students do have free speech rights. Mm. The students wore black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. The Supreme Court ruled that that student free speech could not be restricted unless it disrupted the education process. Melissa Huey, the lawyer for the school district, argued that the notes weren't free speech because a specific student was targeted. But Emma Bond, the ACLU attorney, said that Ayla had long been speaking out about sexual assault. Emma said, quote, doesn't context matter? Huey also argued that the notes instilled fear at the school and that were basically the same thing as a student leaving a bomb threat in a wow. note at school. Wow. On Thursday, October 24th, U.S. District Judge Lance Walker granted Ayla a temporary restraining order against the school. In his decision, he wrote that she would probably win if the litigation went forward. In the Bangor Daily News, Allison Baya said, quote, Today's decision reaffirms that students have the right to freedom of speech and they do not check their rights at the schoolhouse gate. Shell Norris told the Bangor Daily News, All my daughter ever wanted to was for students to feel safe speaking out about sexual assault. I'm so proud of her for standing up for what she believes in. In the ruling, Judge Walker says, Contemporary examples abound of betrayal of free speech principles to avoid ideas or speakers with whom we disagree. Madison would recoil. He's referring to James Madison. Mm. Individual liberty is both the cause and the result of personal fortitude. Walker also wrote that the notes were, quote, neither frivolous nor fabricated, took place within the limited confines of the girls' bathroom, Mm -hmm. related to a matter of concern to the young women who might enter the bathroom and receive the message, and not disruptive of school discipline. Good for him. And he wrote, 
sorry, he, his thing was good. The public has an interest in knowing that neither Mansman nor any other student who expresses a comparable view in a similar fashion will be denied access to school simply because her viewpoint offends the sensibilities of school administrators. If school administrators receive carte blanche to tamp down and vet non-frivolous outcries on topics of social justice expressed in areas generally associated with free student communication, where would that leave us? Mm. The Cape Elizabeth School District is appealing the restraining order against the suspension. They're really doubling wow. down. None of the articles had any information about the other two students who were suspended, but I'm assuming they just took the punishment and didn't fight it. Mm-hmm. And they, they aren't part of the lawsuit. Right. Uh, the case made national news, I think, because it's a very important uh, case about about free speech rights and about sexual abuse in yes. school. And I would say that you could go into any high school, leave a note in the girls' bathroom that said there's a rapist in our school and you know who it is. And a lot of the girls would know who it was. And it there may would be, be different any, guys. It would be, yes, <laughs> it would be. It could be any boy or teacher. Right. And to say there are no rapists in our school is How many? Not only bullshit, but it's irresponsible. There's like 515 students at Cape Elizabeth High School. Yeah, it's a nice school. Yeah, very nice. It's a nice um, town. I would be um, flabbergasted if if you could say I can walk into a group of 500 people and there isn't one person in there who's who's not a rapist. I mean, that sounds cynical. I'm sorry, but right. And here's my my bullet point (laughs) to get all jargony about it. One, if I walked into a bathroom and saw that note, I wouldn't necessarily even think it was about a specific person. No. But I would think, boy, she's got it right. Yeah. You know, that that I would feel like it was making a bigger point about the school. The fact yes. that they keep saying it's about a specific person is troubling to me. Yes. Second, I wonder, I'm not sure how good they are at keeping bathrooms clean of graffiti these days, but I wonder if you go into the boys' room how much graffiti you would see oh, no shit about, about girls. girls and who and sucks cock yeah. and blah, blah, exactly. blah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was thinking that, too. And I wonder if anyone has been hunted down and suspended and looked at surveillance cameras and stuff because of that, although I'm sure none of the boys are going to the authorities and complaining about no. it. Number three, I think it's very interesting and a metaphor for what goes on in society when women bring up sexual assault, that very quickly the discussion was not about sexual assault in schools, but how do we shut this fucking girl up yes. and make sure she keeps her goddamn right. mouth shut about it? I think it's exactly. I think it's deliberately obtuse of the school and the people who represent it to say it was targeting one boy. Because if that high school is like any other high school in America, including the one we went to, there are several boys who have reputations yes. for for sexual assault. There are people you stay away from. There are teachers yes. you stay away from. And maybe things are better now because mm. there's more awareness than yeah. there were. But it really bothers me that a school, especially one as wealthy and supposedly as enlightened as Cape Elizabeth, didn't take the opportunity to talk about sexual assault in the school and how it's handled in a very public way, but instead to to publicly and nationally vilify know, a I young know, woman. Crazy. And I give that girl a lot of credit. She is a smart girl, right. a woman. And the the thing that I made me think of, too, is things have definitely changed because I was thinking about graffiti in, in our school bathrooms. 
And there was graffiti. And there is in college. Well, I can remember someone so-and-so is a slut yeah, in the girls' room. I got room. that about me once. Yeah, well. I wasn't in high school. I'm joking. Not in high school, maybe not. But I remember for ye- it was for years it was there. Somebody had put graffiti on the school, uh, spray-painted it. <laughs> this her, this boy's name and it says he sucks green donkey dicks and it was there forever yeah. and why the boy never complained right. I don't know Maybe he and why no one ever did yeah. anything it was right there and, yeah. and it wasn't small it was where was it it was on the side of the Stone Street side of the new school right right like there was a stairway going up and it said right right you know, yeah. Bob Smith sucks green donkey dick. <laughs> and then another time, the back of the school, there was an entrance into the cafeteria, and somebody had sprayed at night. And this was removed quickly because a student complained. A student that who, she was gay, and someone had written her name really big and wrote is, you know, some slur against lesbians. Right. And she, she didn't see it at first. Because she came out the door and it was on the wall behind her mm-hmm. and nobody wanted to tell her it was there and someone did. And she went to the principal and said, I'm leaving school right. And of course, nowadays that would be like a big, right. but back then it was from Page yeah. Press Herald. Um, and also you wonder, did no administrator or teacher or janitor? I don't know if anyone had seen it because we saw it first thing in the morning. Morning, right? And it was it was on the back of the school. But anyways, but that one about what's his name? I was like, why is that? And at the time, (laughs) no one found anything about it. We just laugh and say, look at that thing that they wrote about him. And now it's like, first of all, he was he was only like two years ahead of me, so he was in school at the same time. And I'm like, one of the football players probably wrote it about him, and he was a football player. It was probably his friend or something, and they thought it was funny. But but I think it's I think it's interesting. I agree with the whole self-identifying yes. rapist thing because for the school to say that this very, very, I very know. general note targets I one know. person is, is almost the school saying, "Well, there, there, we do have this rapist, yes. so obviously everyone's going to know it's him." You I know, know. It's and crazy. and what annoyed me about the news coverage of this is that. I, I, which was mostly TV at the time. I was probably in one of those phases. I was really busy and didn't read my newspaper. But it was days of them reporting the story before it was clear that she didn't name I someone know. in the notes. I know. There was. I know. And I don't think it was ever clear that other people besides her. Yes, notes. it wasn't. It wasn't. And but I think it's really. They didn't say what the note said for the longest time. But I think the school could have handled it. In a totally different way, and it's really shameful that it had to become a free speech issue, and it's not a sexual assault. And it's still a free speech issue, because they're fighting it. And I don't know if this is, if it's relevant or not that it is an affluent town. I think it is. But I feel like the principal and the administrators are trying to placate all the rich parents. Right, especially, right, the rich parents who help fund the football team and all that stuff. You, I do feel, and this is just total speculation because there's really no way of knowing, that if it were one of Maine's poorer communities, it might have played out differently, and it probably would not have ended up on the news. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think, what would I do if I was running a school and that happened? And I, I would hope that I would I would call the person and say, why did you write this note? Right. Is there something going on we need to know yes. about? Like I said initially, I bet you, I could be wrong, maybe they're great about cleaning up the bathroom. No, I bet you there's I bet you there is much worse thing and very I specific things on the boys' bathroom I'm walls. I'm sure there are. And like in bathrooms that you have to share, like at public parks mm-hmm. and stuff, 
some of the graffiti that's like scratched into the I, I can remember in the 70s and 80s and stuff, you know, there were pictures of people sucking yeah, I know. There's names under them. Lots of penises, names of mm-hmm. people, particularly girls, and what they did yeah. with boys and um and girls' phone numbers. And that's I'm what not, that whole song Jenny Jenny right, is about. Right, and I'm not saying that that was good, but what I'm saying is I'm sure there are still similar oh, things yeah. going on on the walls of bathrooms, possibly on the and walls. And talk about rumor spreading. I'm yeah. sure there's still the same old, even though we we feel like we've come a long way and it's been, you know, over 35 years since I was in high school. And But it's the same old thing, right. uh, double standard. Girls are slutty or people are going to talk about them behind their back but, right. um, or in front of them about their their sex life boys um apparently can be a rapist and, and get away with it but when and I, be bullied. there were some boys in my school that had spent time they had raped somebody and then the girl uh, had to come back and be in school with right them. that happens and and of course people spread rumors about her not them and also i think it dilutes the whole issue of bullying that yeah. when something this ridiculous and i'm not saying what she did was ridiculous but when it's called bullying when she's actually just making, uh, it's almost like a performance art yeah. statement, really muddies the water. Well, I think it's disingenuous, too, for yeah. the administrators yeah. to say, well, you should have come to us and, and talked to us about it. You shouldn't have done it this way. Because they did try to talk to them, yeah. and they tried repeatedly, and she's been an advocate, and she said that when she, especially after that summit, uh, about sexual assault awareness in school that even more people because of because of her activism right. people sought her out and told her and I can't even imagine how many young women and boys too that have probably been assaulted that have never told anybody right they probably never will yeah handling it like this is going right. to ensure that a lot more of them well, are well and I to. think in this day and age school administrators especially one ones and in such an enlightened and informed school district as Cape Elizabeth should be aware of the nuances of sexual assault and sexual assault reporting and how, you know, only like 2% or something or some small percentage of all sexual assaults are reported. And that obviously in their school of 500 plus kids, this is going on and they should be more aware of it and more equipped to handle it in a way that makes everyone feel like, it's being handled. Yeah. And frankly, girls are sexually assaulted and raped in high school, even on school grounds and at parties and at events and everything, and it's not reported. No. And to to pussyfoot around it and feel like implying that there may be boys at that school who have raped girls is hurting people's feelings, it really is ridiculous when there are girls who are being hurt. Yes. And possibly other boys, too. Yeah. You know, being right. hurt by boys. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It, the whole thing pissed me off. It's frustrating because every time you think we've moved forward a little bit, you realize something like this happens, and you realize how many people who are out there who just don't get it. No, they people don't. People who are in control of making decisions 
And, um, and you can't, like like she said, you can't just say, well, it's really hard to know what this mandate of reporting. It's so complicated. As the administrators of a high school, you should know. There's a lot of fucking confusing things in the world. And actually, it isn't that confusing. You just report something. I think what's confusing to them is, well, what if the girl's making it up? Or what if she's hurting some boy's reputation? Blah, blah, blah. I think that's what's confusing to them. But if a girl... Or a boy reports that they've been assaulted, fucking report it. I know. And let the authorities who are yeah. equipped to sort it out. I know. I can't imagine being a, uh, a social worker at a school and just telling someone, um, yeah, you, you you should just move on. Although it strikes me in our high school that, ma- that if we had had social workers, which we didn't, we had guidance counselors, yeah. who that maybe that would have been the response oh, yeah. to some back, of them. Back in the 80s. Yeah. In seventies when I was there. I mean, yeah. come on. Anyway, so but anyway, well, that was good. That was a good report. It was much more informative than anything I had seen or read about it. So now yeah. I understand what happened. And because we had so much today, we're not doing negative Sorry, but we will next time. Yeah. And um, we're hoping around Christmas time, which won't be that far away, that since our sister Liz will be visiting, that we'll be able to do another guest Oregon. Um, I hope so. Episode because hers tends to be popular. She's very well organized and yeah. professorial. Yeah. So anyway, thank and, you. Oh, oh, and she was going to update. She had emailed us that she is going to update that high, the Highway 20 murders. Ooh, she had an update on that because she went to um, a discussion with the journalist who had oh, um, nice. written about it. So that'll that's all well, that'll be forward to. And I'll put that in the newsletter too, I was which will come you out. Tell me she found Kyron Horman. No. No, poor little Simon. I just Simon. listened to the doctor film one. Yeah. Anyway, so I guess that's it for today. And you might be doing the next one. I guess so. Today was your turn, but... I did too long. Ones. Yeah, I guess so. No, I can do the next one. I'll okay. do the next one. I have one in mind. Uh, I don't want to say because sometimes I change my mind. Uh, yeah, I always do. Okay, well, thank you, everybody. Yeah, and you can find us on the, our Crime and Stuff Online website. On and Facebook. Our social media and and, and if you're still with us here, you can always donate on Patreon and help thank us you everybody up our game a little. Us. Yes. And thanks for listening. Okay, bye. Okay, so this is our test. Okay. Test recording. I want to have a cookie. And we'll probably be sitting kind of looking at the microphone like this. Okay. Kind of it. Yes, we probably will. Okay. Okay, so wait till you're yeah. Wait till you're finished chewing the cookies. Is that on? Okay. Is that thing on? Is this thing on? It looks like a penis. Actually, oh, you know what was funny? I was listening to one of those Jeff Epstein um, because I'm listening to two at the same time podcasts, and um, in this disposition, and they were like reading the transcript. Is it true, sir? Your penis is shaped like an egg, (laughs) and I was at the bank like ATM and I had my window rolled down and I realized that it was on really loud and like this person in the car next to me like looked over and I'm like maybe I shouldn't have this on like can you not take a bite so you can talk normally without eating yes <laughs> I'll try to talk normally I'm sorry I'm That's sorry right. I'm eating I know it's disgusting no it's not but it's just because we're Cause doing some people it is like well it is to me but you're the one that brought cookies for the sake of our sound test that you should be talking, like, without food in your mouth so we can make sure it sounds okay is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because, and, and it's not, even though I find listening to people eat disgusting and, and annoying, 
the, the bigger issue is we want to make sure the sound's okay. Okay, yes. So I have stopped eating. Okay. Say uh, something I, else. Um, I've done most of the talking. Okay. 